Dear congregation, let us turn in God's holy word to the gospel according to John, chapter 16. and find it on page 1243 in your pew Bible. John 16. I will read the entire chapter. Let us hear the word of the Lord as it comes to us this afternoon. These things I have spoken to you, that you should not be made to stumble. They will put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers God service. And these things they will do to you because they have not known the Father nor me. But these things I have told you, that when the time comes, you may remember that I told you of them. And these things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. But now I go away to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin because they do not believe in me. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father and you see me no more. Of judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. However, when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you of things to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said, he will take of mine and declare it to you. A little while, and you will not see me. And again a little while, and you will see me, because I go to the Father. Then some of his disciples said among themselves, What is this that he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. And because I go to the Father. They said, therefore, what is this that he says a little while? We do not know what he is saying. Now Jesus knew that they desired to ask him, and he said to them, Are you inquiring among yourselves about what I said a little while? And you will not see me, and again a little while, and you will see me. Most assuredly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. And you will be sorrowful, but your sorrows will be turned into joy. A woman, when she is in labor, has sorrow because her hour has come. But as soon as she has given birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. Therefore, you now have sorrow. But I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and your joy no one will take from you. And in that day, you will ask me nothing. Most assuredly, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask 
and you will receive, that your joy may be full. These things I have spoken to you in figurative language, but the time is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language, but I will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I, and I do not say to you that I shall pray the Father for you, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me, and have believed that I come forth from God. I come, came forth from the Father, and have come into the world. Again, I leave the world and go to the Father. His disciples said to him, See, now you are speaking plainly and using no figure of speech. Now we are sure that you know all things and have no need that anyone should question you. By this we believe that you come, came forth from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Indeed, the hour is coming, yes, has now come, that you will be scattered each to his own and will leave me alone. And yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Amen. May God bless the reading of his precious and infallible word. Our sermon will also be based on the outline that we have in the Heidelberg Catechism. And as we are working through what we confess in our undoubted Christian faith, we'll also be dealing with Lord's Day 20, what we believe regarding the confession, I believe in the Holy Spirit. So question 53, what do you believe concerning the Holy Spirit? And the answer is this. First, that he is true and co-eternal God with the Father and the Son. Secondly, that he has also given me to make me by a true faith, partaker of Christ and all his benefits, that he may comfort me and abide with me forever. As far as confession from Lord's Day 20. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we think about the Trinitarian structure of the Apostles' Creed, our, our undoubted Catholic Christian faith, we come to what we would call a Trinitarian structure. First of all, regarding what we believe concerning the person and the work of God the Father. Secondly, the person and work of God the Son. And now we move into the person and work of the Holy Spirit. And one might argue with such a short Lord's Day, a short question and answer on the Holy Spirit, that the Heidelberg Catechism doesn't draw very much attention to the Holy Spirit. And it is true, the Heidelberg Catechism, like the Word of God, does not draw that much attention directly to the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit himself uses the Word of God to direct our attention to the Lord Jesus Christ. He himself doesn't draw attention to himself. And that even 
is shown in Scripture, that the work of the Holy Spirit is interwoven throughout Scripture, shining the light on Jesus Christ. And one might recognize this as they turn to the Heidelberg Catechism and page through it and look at the questions and answers. And yet we recognize from the very beginning of the Heidelberg Catechism to the very end of it, the work of the Holy Spirit is interwoven through each and every Lord's Day. And although it may appear that the work of the Holy Spirit is underdeveloped, let us never, let us never take Uh, that position, but rather see the work of the Holy Spirit from beginning to end in the salvation of sinners, applying that only comfort in life and in death. And it is true that many in our our culture, or Christian culture anyway, um, overemphasize the work of the Holy Spirit. Here I think of Pentecostals who who would emphasize the work of the Holy Spirit to such a level that that they're speaking in tongues and and focusing so much on the work of the Holy Spirit that indeed, unless there's some kind of signs of the Holy Spirit's work in you and through you, that salvation could never be secure. I remember in Lacombe when I was serving there, we had an uh, international student that was living by one of the families and he was working on their farm. And he, he couldn't imagine how this family was going to a church that had a pastor with one blind eye and an elder with one arm half missing. Because after all, if we had the gift of the Holy Spirit, you wouldn't have a half blind pastor and a lame man in your congregation. There was an overemphasis on the work of the Holy Spirit. But there's also the other extreme that goes in such an opposite direction that they undervalue the work of the Holy Spirit and the person of the Holy Spirit and put all of the emphasis on the Lord Jesus Christ and his redeeming work. And once they know and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, then that's the end of the story. And they undervalue the person in the work of the Holy Spirit, the one who comes and lives within us, the one who continues to, to nourish us and cause us to grow in grace and in knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Reminding us of the Father's care for us and so on. And so there are also those who undervalue the work of the Holy Spirit. And so today, we need to be clear on some of the basic terminology of who the Holy Spirit is and the work of the Holy Spirit. And with that in mind, we'd like to look at this with the theme, I believe in the Holy Spirit. And first of all, we will understand that we confess that he is a divine person. Secondly, that we confess that he does a divine work. And thirdly, we will confess him in worship. Confessing the Holy Spirit as a divine person of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit is not some kind of force or energy 
And we don't call the Holy Spirit an it. The Holy Spirit is a person. And as such, ought to be called properly in the, in the pronoun he or him. Just as our text does in John 16, verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, he will. And so on. He's addressed as a person. Not just some kind of power that Christ is going to come and supplement what he's leaving behind. No, he's sending a person, a a divine person, to be our helper. And we need to remember that. As our confession acknowledges too, that he is true and co-eternal God with the Father and the Son. And there are countless biblical proofs that he indeed is a divine person by his very names. Think of verse 13 of our text. However, when he, the Holy Spirit of truth, often in Scripture he's called the Spirit of Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. He's called the Holy Spirit. These are divine names. Names that contain divine attributes. Holy. Truth. Christ. These are divine attributes and works. He's a a helper. He's been given to us by God as a person who dwells within us to convict us of sin and of righteousness and judgment, to teach us all things, to call things to our remembrance, and to apply everything that is merited by Christ and to apply it through faith as he unites us to Christ. These are divine works. These aren't the works of some kind of power, but rather of a divine person with divine attributes who deserves divine honor. He has the honor of taking the things of Christ and taking dead sinners, making them alive, and giving them the forgiveness of sins and life everlasting through our Lord Jesus Christ. To come to us in our deepest trials and challenges. To comfort us in all of our afflictions. He, can, he has divine honors. It's a time of baptize. We're, we're baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Each and every Lord's Day, he's honored when we are greeted. That grace comes through the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We are blessed in the name of the Holy Spirit. Because he is a distinct divine person in the Trinity. He's co-eternal with the Father and the Son. He has been forever and he will be forever. Now, within the Trinity, we need to remember that the Holy Spirit is given by Christ. Christ says, as our text says, he's, he's up in the upper room here in John 16, already beginning of John 13. 
And he's instructing his disciples about how they will go forward and go on even as he returns to heaven to be with his Father. And he's saying that I will pray the Father in John 14 and he will give you another helper. And notice in John 16, he says, Nevertheless, I tell you of a truth, I will send him that helper. And so what we find here is that the Holy Spirit proceeds both from the Father and the Son. They both send the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of truth, the Spirit of the Father unto us. And why is this important? Well, we need to, first of all, understand that this is important for us because all of our salvation is wrapped up in the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. From the Father electing us from all eternity and the Son suffering and dying for our sins and the Holy Spirit applying that salvation unto us. And we need to recognize that there is absolutely no conflict within the Godhead. It's not that the Father was stingy in in election. He's elected all of His people. And it's not that the Son wanted more people to be saved. And it's not that the Holy Spirit really wants to work in more people, but they're trying to twist each other's arms to see who would all be saved. There's no conflict in the Godhead, period. The Father's will is one with the Son's will, and the Holy Spirit's will is the same as the Father and the Son's will, and they accomplish the very purpose of God through their will being one. It's perfect, one. Could you imagine? If God himself in heaven was wrestling within himself as to who should be saved, how secure would your salvation be? How would you understand who God is? You would think that Jesus is a, is a loving, caring God, and yet the Father is not, and, or the Holy Spirit is not. But it's not true. They are one, and yet distinct divine purposes to carry out that one will of God. Their will is one. And that's an encouragement. And it's especially an encouragement when this becomes a reality, a personal reality in a believer's experience. You see, He is given to us as a real person, not just some kind of force, but as a real person, he connects us to the Lord Jesus Christ by a true and living faith. We can understand that the Father has given his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and he's given him to be for us, to die for us, to be a substitute for us, to earn our righteousness for us. But what's equally as important and what's equally as amazing is that He gives His Holy Spirit to dwell in us despite who we are, despite our sinfulness, despite our waywardness, Despite our slowness to understand, even as the disciples here, and our slowness to believe, 
And how often we also are scattered around, even like the disciples. He gives His Holy Spirit to dwell in us. And by coming to dwell in us, He secures that connection to the anchor of our hope that is in heaven. He secures the end in heaven to the Lord Jesus Christ. And He secures the anchor of our hope to us here on earth, despite who we are. He will not let us go. It's not just that He's some kind of divine force. No, He is a divine person that takes His abode within us. As believers, I believe in the Holy Spirit who's been given to me, uniting me to Christ. That's really the work of the, of the Holy Spirit. And so we don't only confess the Holy Spirit's divine person, but also we confess the Holy Spirit's divine work. And that work, as our catechism says, and we mentioned already, it is to make me, by true faith, partaker of Christ in all his benefits, that he may comfort me and abide with me forever. When we think of our work, we often associate that with a calling, or you might even say a special work. You may have an office. You have an office, things that you are called to do and anointed to do and equipped to do. And so, the Holy Spirit has taken upon Himself the very work that God has arranged for Him to do. And He engages in applying all that Christ has merited to a sinner who comes to Him in true faith. He pledges to perform what He has been given to do within the Godhead to apply all that Christ has done for us. All the redeeming work of the Lord Jesus Christ, He applies it to men and women, boys and girls, who put their trust in Him. That's what He does. And that's why He glorifies Christ through His work. He draws attention to what Christ has done for us. He takes the very words of Christ to teach us what Christ has taught us. He takes the word of God, the word of Christ, and brings it to our remembrance at times when we are afflicted, in times when we are persecuted, in times when we are challenged. And he reminds us of who Christ is. He opens our eyes to see him. He gives us life to live out of Him. He gives us and encourages us and empowers us to live a life to His glory as we live out of Him. Notice what Jesus says the Holy Spirit has given to us to do. He says He will, in verse verse 8 of John 16, He will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. What's he saying there? He's saying we need the Holy Spirit and are dependent upon the Holy Spirit to convict us of sin. He needs to open our eyes. He needs to make our consciences aware 
of our guiltiness. In order to give us true repentance and a sorrow over sin and to, that we would flee from sin and take refuge in the Lord Jesus Christ, He opens our eyes. He gives us an understanding of who we are. And He gives us an understanding of who Jesus is as the righteous one. And indeed, He does. He convinces us that indeed, He is the only righteous one. And even though the world has judged the Lord Jesus Christ, found Him guilty, and crucified the Lord of glory, He is risen indeed to be our righteous one, the ruler of the whole universe. And He convinces us of these truths. And He, and he graciously guides us into all truth. Notice how this prophecy of Christ, as it were, is, is actually fulfilled in Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. Acts 2, it, there we find that Peter is, is dealing primarily with three subjects. First of all, sin and rejecting Christ. He says, you by the hand of lawless men have crucified and killed him, the Lord of glory. This Jesus whom you have crucified. He convicts them of sin. He convinces them of righteousness. Jesus of Nazareth, this man was approved by God, he says. Convinces them of judgment. And now Christ is seated at the right hand of God until all of his enemies are being, as all of his enemies are being placed under his footstool. And he says, you too are judged. And so, therefore, save yourself from this crooked, perverse generation. As they're pricked in the heart, the Holy Spirit is opening their eyes as they cry out, Brothers, what shall we do? And that day, through the work of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost, God was pleased to save 3,000 souls. It's that same preaching of the gospel that convicts of sin and of right, convinces of righteousness and judgment and guides us into all truth. The Holy Spirit, His work is to glorify Jesus Christ. Because Christ will be glorified when sinners come to Him in faith and repentance for a full and a free salvation. And it's all because of the Father's electing love that He comes to us in the Gospel and calls us out, regenerates us, gives us new life. As He gives us faith and repentance, as He makes us right with God and adopts us into the family of God and makes us holy by sanctifying us and preserves us to the end and glorifies us at the end. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. It's not just a work that He does initially in our salvation. But it's a work that continues as He takes His abode within us and dwells within us and walks with us. He causes us to grow and persevere even to the end as He gives us a deeper understanding of our sin 
and, and to direct us to habitually rest and trust in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. As he, as he even takes us and molds us into the image of Christ, as we've seen this morning, He chisels us, taking away all that would hinder us from being like Christ. Even through His disciplining care over us. He reminds us in the midst of our challenges that there's victory in the Lord Jesus Christ. He reminds us that Jesus has overcome the world and in Him we can also have victory. And that in Him we are preserved to the end despite our waywardness, despite our, our persecutions and afflictions. He will preserve us. And He grants us that enjoyment in the family of God. When we cry out, Abba, Father. As He grants unto us a peace in that family that passes all understanding. This is the work of the Holy Spirit as he takes his abode within me and comforts me in this life. Is there anything more sweet than a helper who would come to comfort us with the very love of God? To give A sorrowful, as Jesus is saying to them, a sorrowful soul, the joy of Christ's salvation. To take those who had affections for this world and to redirect those affections to God and to Jesus Christ. To take those who delighted themselves in all the pleasures of the world, that they would now delight in Jesus Christ by his Spirit. To take those who were hardened, to make them tender and kind and merciful. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. This is what we confess when we say, I believe in the Holy Spirit. We believe Him as a person. We believe Him for His work's sake. But now the final point gets more personal. Do we confess the Holy Spirit in worship? And I'm not just talking about when we come to church to worship. I'm talking about the broad definition of worship in all of our life do we confess him in worship if he is given to me to abide in me that i might also abide in christ and 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 the family of god and that he is given to me to be that helper and i'm totally dependent upon him then in all of my life I ought to respond to the truth of the Holy Spirit in worship. 
Yes, we worship Him as God triune. And also that includes Him as the third person of the Trinity. We worship Him because of His divine work. But do we know in worship our dependence upon Him every single day? We desperately need His presence. Because all of our salvation is dependent upon the Holy Spirit working in us. Yes, it's dependent upon the Father and His electing love. Yes, it's dependent upon the Son and His redeeming grace. But it's also 100% dependent upon the Holy Spirit working that in our hearts and in our lives. We, as a church of the Lord Jesus Christ, are 100% dependent upon the Holy Spirit. There's a quote from Tozer that I found once that has been really convicting to me. Especially as a pastor of a church, and I trust it would also be convicting to consistories and so on. And also to you as members. And it goes like this. If the Holy Spirit was withdrawn from the church today, 95% of what we do would go on and no one would even know the difference. 95% of our church life would just go on and we would appear to be a church just like we were the day before the Holy Spirit left us. No one would know the difference. But, he says, if the Holy Spirit had been withdrawn from the New Testament church, 95% of what they did would stop. And everybody would know the difference. Now that's very humbling as a pastor. As I go to my study and I prepare sermons, am I as dependent upon the Holy Spirit as I ought to be? Is that evident in my prayer as I prepare sermons? Is that evident in my diligence and study day by day in God's Word, knowing I need the enlightening power of the Holy Spirit? Is that evident in my prayers for you? That I'll be praying in the Holy Spirit. You see what I'm saying? 95% of what I do as a pastor, you may not even notice the difference. Or do you? But it might also be true of you as a congregation. 95% of your worship might not just be coming to church every Sunday, but rather that would be 5% of your worship. But the 95 would take place, the 95% would take place in your homes. As you're in God's Word, as you're praying throughout the week, That your pastor would also be given enlightenment and understanding and wisdom and your consistory as well. And as you come to worship 
Yes, that would be 5% maybe of your worship. What percentage of your worship is dependent upon the Holy Spirit? You see, God doesn't give us His Holy Spirit He doesn't just say, I'm going to give my Holy Spirit to you. He says this. He gives his Holy Spirit into us. To dwell with us. To make his abode with us. And if he's living in us, he's not just out there, or he's not just here in worship, but he's with us every day single moment of every single day because now we are the temple, the tabernacle of God. And we worship the Holy Spirit. Really, that's what worship is. Worship is casting ourselves before someone, namely God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Casting ourselves on our knees before him in complete dependence and adoration for who he is. That's worship. I can't preach a sermon and make any lasting change in any one of your lives without the power of the Holy Spirit. I need to depend upon him. I need to worship him every single day. And so do you. That we might also be blessed, especially in his worship service. It's the Holy Spirit in worship as he strives with you, convict you of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Maybe I can ask it this way so even our children can understand. If you were in the same room with God and you could see God, you could see the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit all in one mystery, but you could see them and they were looking right at you. How would you behave? You sit pretty well in church. And it's only the pastor looking at you. Imagine if it was God. But if we truly believe and confess the Holy Spirit in worship, he's not just looking at us. He's within us. He knows our thoughts. He knows what goes through our mind. He knows our lust, our affections. But he also knows our love for the Lord Jesus Christ when we trust in him. He knows us. You see, this is practically what it means to confess him in worship. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe that he takes the very word of Christ And he unites me to Christ. 
never minimize the importance of the Holy Spirit. But recognize the danger. The danger of minimizing the Holy Spirit, resisting the Holy Spirit, quenching the Holy Spirit, blaspheming the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit is striving with you, remember the words of Jesus Christ. Matthew 12, anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or the age to come. Rather, worship the Holy Spirit by asking for the Holy Spirit in prayer, knowing your dependence upon him, Praying earnestly for him and through him. Pray like David, take not your Holy Spirit from me. Take him not from me so that I might know you more, that I might know the benefits of Christ more and more, that I might glorify Christ more and more, and know you as the triune God more, that I might know myself, that I might enjoy a vibrant, fruitful, personal relationship with you, the triune God. And don't think that the Holy Spirit is somehow away from you, distant from you, or that he would not take his abode within you. Because what does Jesus say here in John 16? And in that day, you will ask me nothing. Most assuredly, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. Ask and you shall be received, that your joy may be full. Isn't that what he says also in Luke 11? If a son asks for bread from any father among you, will you give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish... Will you give him a serpent instead of a fish? If he asks for an egg, will you give him a scorpion? If you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? The Holy Spirit has not taken his abode in you. You should ask yourself this. Have I asked for him? Have I pled for him? Have I truly worshipped him? Shown my dependence upon him? And reflect on the words of James who reminds us, you have not because you ask not. He is worthy of our worship. And the first act of worship is to ask for the Holy Spirit, knowing your dependence upon him. And then you won't have a problem with overemphasizing the work of the Holy Spirit, nor undervaluing the work of the Holy Spirit. But you will say with Samuel Rutherford, I know not which of the divine persons I need the most. But one thing I know I need them all and love them them all. Do you, do I confess? I believe in the Holy Spirit. I need him. I love him. 
just as I love and need the Father and the Son. That is to worship the Holy Spirit. And do you pray? And do I pray? Lord, don't take your Holy Spirit from me. From us as a congregation. The Lord could take a pastor, an elder, a member of our congregation, and take them away from us. It would be sad. But the church would go on. But he can't take the Holy Spirit from us or we're no longer a church. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord, we confess with your servant David, and we plead with your servant David, take not your Holy Spirit from us. For we confess our dependence upon you as the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so be pleased, O Lord, to grant us your Spirit in full measure, shining the light of the gospel on the Lord Jesus Christ, and that we, O Lord, would be convicted of sin and convinced of righteousness and of judgment. Lord, we need your grace. We need your spirit. And we gather in worship to declare that and to plead for your grace. For Jesus' sake, amen.